Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I am Kaylee Fretz. Hope you enjoyed our special Rafa Roadmap episode last week, chatting with Dave Brailsford and Simon Mottram and Tiffany Cromwell and Mitch Docker. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did as well. We got lots of pretty interesting feedback from that, in particular on some of the things that Dave Brailsford was saying, which I, I threw up in a story on the site as well. So if you missed that, go check it out. But we're back with a regular episode of the podcast this week we've got the usual crew we've got shoddy dave in his bat cave yeah zoom background big fan of mr adam weston burt ward here we've got dane cash in his living room cave very very much less interesting whoa come on work very hard on these um walls and uh putting the bikes in those corners here and James in his garage, as usual. What what interesting bicycle bit do you have behind you today, James? Uh, this is my personal bike, my personal Allied that recently got repainted. That is, oh, you sent me that photo. That is shiny and fantastic. It is. It looks like an old school Klein. It makes me very happy, and I'll be even happier it. when I can actually get it up, to, uh, assembled, and out on the road. I love it. And Abby, you're in Latvia, but not for long, right? One can only hope. <laughs> what's wrong with latvia i've i i you know this is going to be a controversial statement but i've hit the limit of the amount of chocolate that i can consume and still feel well on a daily basis <laughs> it, well and and let me add that as much as i appreciate abby bringing me back personally firsthand a big bag of latvian chocolate belgian chocolate's better <gasps> Oh man! Fighting words, fighting words. I can, I can bring better. I can bring like a, better. like a lot better. <laughs> it's a lot better. Beet chocolate. Just kidding. I haven't tried it. Beet chocolate? That just sounds wrong. <laughs> sounds that gross. just sounds completely wrong. I think Latvia just got ejected from the EU. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into this. Let's get into this. We've got a whole bunch of things to talk about today. We're going to talk about NTT and its sort of new form for next year and we're going to go through some of the transfers that have happened it is sort of the end of transfer season right now so we'll talk about the last some of the last riders to get picked up really and there's still some big names without teams that we've heard of um and then we're going to get into a little debate over a story that i put up on sunday kind of on a whim about essentially what broadcasters should be showing in terms of crash replays and things like that particularly in the moments right after a really bad incident something like remco venipol launching over a bridge or jakobsen flying into the barriers in poland those kind of incidents not not sort of everyday crashes but the, the big the big bad ones spurred by a really terrifying crash in the formula one grand prix grand prix over the weekend in bahrain uh, which saw roman grosjean somehow miraculously walk away from a giant fireball uh that his car sort of stuck into the side of an armco barrier we'll get into that debate a little bit later in the show and then finally today's nerd alert we're gonna be talking about a pretty wild new chain design that was dug up by our new tech reporter ronan mclaughlin and we're gonna be talking about how it might make bikes faster particularly i think in the short term things like track bikes how we might see this at the next Olympic Games. But first and foremost, we are approaching the holiday season, and what better gift to give than the gift 
of Velo Club, and thus our friendship. If you'd like to buy our friendship, this is the way you do it. Whether it's to yourself or your mom, your Velo Club membership means a great deal to us and is essential to what we are doing here at Cycling Tips. I'm trying to keep a straight face because <laughs> James is inside some sort of giant orange tube of clothing and I don't really know what it is. I'm going to keep going with the Velo Club thing here. <laughs> As a thank you, if you sign up before the end of the year, we'll send you a free copy of our annual a collection of fantastic stories, amazing photography, all sorts of good stuff. It's it's essentially a coffee table book, as close as you can come and still call it a, a magazine. We love it. We're really proud of it, and we want to send you one. But you got to be a Velical member to get it. So head over to cyclingtips.com slash sign up and sign up. Maybe I'll send you as a thank you the photo that I've just screenshotted of James in whatever the heck he is wearing right now. All new Velo Club members get this signed photo of James in whatever orange thing he's wearing. Now, he, he get, looks like he into... looks like Kenny out of South Park, a respectable Kenny. <laughs> Do you know what it look like right now? I look very warm because my garage may be insulated technically, but it is certainly not airtight and it's also not really heated and it is cold outside at the moment. It looks like it's insulated by bike bits. <laughs> you look fantastic, James. Remember the good old days of Vecchio's when we were in like an actual room together and used to like, you know, be able to look each other in the eye while we debated, I don't know, and, many different and things. Eat snacks. Yeah. yeah. I'm wearing I'm wearing a snack sponsor t shirt. We haven't had snack sponsors in ages because now snack sponsors are just like us because we're at our own houses and it's unfortunate. Yeah. Someday, someday we'll get back. I was actually chatting with Jim from Vecchio's the other day. They moved. They've moved locations. Uh, they're over up a little bit further north in town. Up by and me, are, actually. Yeah, they're up by James. We're we are gonna go. We're gonna go back to Vecchio's as soon as we can. Maybe once we all get vaccinated or something like that. Anyway, let's get into today's episode. Dane, we're doing transfers. We're talking NTT. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with NTT because they're the team that is there at the center of a lot of these transfers uh, after having found a new sponsor, which I believe since our last podcast we have not talked about, um, which is very exciting for NTT. Uh, the team will be Quebec Assos in 2021, which is pretty cool because there was uh, a lot of uncertainty about whether this team would continue at all. Uh, it's a team that has a lot of fans. It's a team that has done a lot of good for some uh, good organizations, and it's a team that employs a lot of people. And there was uncertainty leading up to this for, for months. Uh, we got this sort of roller coaster of, uh, of uh, Bjarne Reese saying, yeah, I don't think it's going to work out, and then Doug Ryder saying, no, wait, maybe it will. Uh, and then it has. It's worked out. So uh, Quebec Assos for 2021, um, uh, Reese, by the way, is out, uh, not going to be continuing with the team, but there will be a team and there will be a lot of uh, new riders. So we'll get uh, another year of sort of speculative where's Bjarne Reese going next. That's always exciting. We get to find out what he's going to be building. I mean, he he sort of he's he built a, a smaller team for a while, then he jumped over to NTT, and and that was supposed to be was supposed to be sort of this big collaboration and bringing in the know-how of Bjarne Reese and things like that. Which, uh, well, the know-how of Bjarne Reese is maybe something that you don't always want to bring into a team, sort of. A little bit on the edge there. <laughs> but anyway, 
I think it's super exciting that a a clothing company is coming in as a co-sponsor of of a major world tour team. I mean, Asos is is it's not a massive, massive, massive company, right? Like it's not it's not the size of even for example like a Specialized or a Trek, right? Trek owns its own team. Uh, Trek is a massive company. Asos is a large clothing company, but it's mostly it's just cycling clothing, and it's not that big. So it's got to be a pretty significant investment for that particular brand. Uh, kudos to them for stepping in to a team that, as you said, Dane, is has been really important in a lot of different ways. It's been uh, sort of a pathway for a lot of African riders to get into the World Tour, for example. Uh, Kubeka does fantastic things as a charity. I think it's very important that this team continues to exist and continues to exist at this level, right? Uh, the fact that it's at the World Tour level is really important. It, it means that there's uh, that avenue to the very top of the sport. So kudos to Asos for for stepping in and putting putting their money where their mouth is and backing this team into next year. I think it's fantastic. What we've also got to remember is that Quebec don't actually put a penny into the team. They don't. Act, it, that's a non for profit charity, so they don't actually pay anything to have their name on the jersey. So all the backings come from well. Not just Asos, but I'm guessing everybody else, all the all the other partners. So I can't I can't see him having a very big um, budget next year. And looking at the roster, that's not even looks like it doesn't even look like it's half full yet. They're not going to have um, too many big names on there. Yeah, shout out to Derek Bouchard Hall, who is the former CEO of USA Cycling, and that's actually where I have chatted with him, or the context in which I've chatted with him a, a number of times, and now the CEO over at Asos, uh, American guy, and and I'm gonna guess that he was involved in that decision making process. Uh, as as I said, I think it's a great thing, and it's it's a big move for a not huge company. It's gonna be a it's a it's got to be a pretty significant investment for them. Well, and I think we should remember, too, that, I mean, yeah, Asos is not necessarily a huge company, but, I mean, they are about as high-end as it gets for for cycling clothing. Um, so who knows who knows what their financial situation actually is? But, I mean, Asos obviously has a pretty good core cult following, but, I mean, this is the sort of thing that could really bust them out into more of a mainstream audience. And, you know... It's one thing to be really high end and niche sort of thing, but if you really want to make money, you kind of have to sell a lot of volume, and this would be a good way to get their name out there. Yeah, true. Uh, and the company has changed quite a bit over the last couple of years, I would say, even even in sort of the way that it presents itself in marketing and things like that. I mean, the the classos, uh, classic Asos man, for example, is no longer. Uh, the models have changed. The way that they're presenting things have cha- has changed. The the naming is starting to change to the point where you actually know what on earth you're going to buy and and how it fits in with the rest of the range. We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, yeah, it, it's as you say, they probably do need to or at least want to expand sort of to a, to a broader uh, base of people. And this might be a good way to do it. I also mentioned DBH because uh, Dirk Bouchardall, because I know he listens to the podcast. He sent me an email uh, not that long ago about listening to the podcast. So shout out to him. Uh, I do. I, I, I'm pretty excited about this. I think that it's a it's like I said, it's a really important thing. They, they're clearly going to have to drop their old um, slogan, which was Asos sponsor yourself, because they, they never used to sponsor anybody. Uh, really, they sponsored a few national teams. I think the US national team and. Way back, mm-hmm. they did sponsor a few teams, but um, 
stopped for quite a long time. So, yeah, they're going to definitely be dropping that sponsor yourself. I think it'd be a great ad campaign for them to actually take one of those old sponsor yourself ads and basically just reprint it with a big red line and circle through the sponsor yourself thing and just be like, ah, actually, we were just kidding. <laughs> I mean, technically, they're just following their own advice, right? They're sponsoring their own team oh, yeah, themselves. Right. Yeah, they're they're the naming sponsor now. So they kind of are sponsoring themselves, I guess. It's like going back to the good old days when teams, well, not the good old days, but the, when bike teams were sponsored by bike companies. Uh, I suppose it's what Raphael... Raphael Gimiani or whatever his name was, the Italian guy who really sort of brought forward the bringing different sponsors from the bike world into cycling. So it's uh, we're going back to yeah the good old days when stuff was sponsored by uh, Atlas Bikes and Campagnolo when you had names like that on the jerseys. This is a complete tangent, but I need to throw it in here before we move on to more transfer stuff. Uh, Ernesto Colnago is on Instagram. I don't know who set this up for him. Somebody is is pointing a phone at him, and he's te- he was telling a story. Granted, my Italian is pretty garbage, but this is what I was able to pick up from it. He was telling a story. Uh, I think it was about one of his first bikes in like 1945, which would have been I think he would was like 13 or 14 years old, so maybe his first like racing bike or something. Uh, Anyway, someone is pointing their phone at Ernesto Colnago, the Ernesto Colnago, and sticking it up on Instagram. I just want to say that I'm not really going to be like, while this is a momentous occasion, because Ernesto Colnago is kind of famously kind of computer technology averse sort of in that sense. Uh, I'm not going to get excited until I see him on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's pretty like he's got videos. It's even videos. So it's Ernesto underscore Colnago is is him on instagram he's got they've got old photos in there they've got him chatting about things he's got his little like welcome video what would be way better is if every if somebody filmed him on super 8 and then digitized it <laughs> all his stuff done on 35 millimeter it's basically him saying, I've got an Instagram. <laughs> anyway, go check it out. He's one of the absolute legends. Can you imagine him getting like super, super into it? Like, you know, I want to see like a spy photo of him sitting down for his morning coffee and like, you know, cracking out his phone, and like taking a picture of his coffee with his with his little like, you know, his little his little foam leaf at the top. He's officially an, an influencer for sure. He's already got over a thousand followers and he's been on on Instagram for like three days. So. Our our listeners, go over, check it out. Ernesto underscore Colnago. Uh, if anyone speaks better Italian than me, which is literally any Italian pretty much at all, let, let me know what he says in those two videos. I would actually, I would like to know. Uh, like I said, I can't, I can't pick up much of it. Now, let's get back to transfers before we get on to our debate for the day. Dane, what are the other sort of headlines here? Well, there's lots to talk about with NTT. I mean, it's great that this team is going to continue. That's really good news uh, on all fronts. It's going to be a very, very different team. Uh, they they have re-signed some of their riders. They did have a few riders who are going to be continuing uh, for 2021, but uh, a, a bunch of their riders are leaving. And, and they had, I think, probably told riders, you know, you go ahead and sign up with other teams because we don't know what's going to happen with this team. We're going to have to put any kind of contract discussions on hold and and what you ended up seeing is is like half of their team is uh is moving on so a lot of the riders that people 
kind of associate with this team are not going to be there next year. Um, I'm going to speed read the list here of riders who are confirmed to be leaving. Uh, Edvald Bosenhagen, Roman Kreuziger, Enrico Gasparato is retiring. Uh, Michael Valgren, Louis Menkes, Ryan Gibbons, Ben King, Ben O'Connor, Amanuel Gebrezgavir, Samuele Betestella, Michael Carvel, Matteo Sobrero, Stefan Dabad, and Rasmus Tiller. Those are all uh, confirmed departures for this team, and, and some names that people really associate with this team. Louis Menkes, I think, is a big one. He's been their GC guy on and off uh, for a while. Uh, Bosenhagen, yeah, I mean, th this is going to be a very different team. They have signed a few riders. They've re-signed a few riders to come back for next year, uh, and then they've also got some names coming in, the, the big transfers coming in to, uh, to uh, the Quebec Astros team for now. Uh, Simon Clark, Dimitri Clays, Lukas Wisniewski, Karl Vacek, uh, Killian Frankini, and Sean Bennett, uh, the uh, promising young American. The, the scuttlebutt at the moment is that they may sign Fabio Aru, uh, which would be a, a pretty big signing for them. They need somebody to replace uh, Louis Menkes. They, they don't really have a big GC guy. Uh, they did re-sign Jakob Solo and uh, Victor Campanarts. So, looking at this team, it is very... At this, at this point, they, they still need some talent to be a competitive kind of world tour squad. But with a guy like Jakob Solo, who is the European road champion, he's a two-time Giro points champ, uh, with, you know, potential time trial stage wins from Campanarts, and if Fabio Aru is signed and can get back to the level, or even somewhere near the level where he used to be, uh, I, think they're, I think they're fine. Um, that, that kind of gives them the ability to, to be competitive across the calendar. Ten points to Dane for using the word scuttlebutt in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> One gold star. Uh, Nizzolo does sort of ensure that it, they'll at least win something next year, right? I mean, that that's sort of the nice thing about having a... a one of the top sprinters, you know, I wouldn't say he's he's sort of very very top of the heap, but clearly European champion. He's going to win some stages of something to next year, so they won't come out of twenty twenty one with nothing, which is nice. Fabio Aru, I can't imagine is super expensive anymore. I mean, he's just sort of like collapsed routinely over the last couple of years. I'm starting to think that that Giro that that he won over top of Joe Dombrowski was in some way cursed because him and Joe have just run into problem after problem over the last what seven eight years <laughs> but yeah I, I, it's it's one of those teams where when a sponsor comes in that late when it's you know assets was an existing sponsor of that of that team probably isn't coming in with a huge amount of money you know they're not coming in with jim ratcliffe Ineos, you know worth 18 billion dollars money uh, i can't imagine that they sign any super high profile riders between now and the end of the year plus all the super high profile riders are already picked up I'm surprised they picked up Simon Clark. That's that's a good, a good signing there because he's had a pretty good season this year, and I think he could, would have had an even better season if well it weren't a bit messy because back in March he looked like he was absolutely on fire at the I think it was the Drone Classic was it he won so yeah he's 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 a rider that's sort of coming to the end of his racing career. What he's 34 now, but he definitely seems to. Have seems to have found the way to ride the past, the past two years, like found himself in a, a good position within the peloton. And he's a really important sort of road captain type figure yeah. as well. Uh, so I think that he's, yeah, a good signing on a number of fronts. And, you know, this is not going to be a bad team next year. And, you know, it's just going to be a team that has to be probably opportunistic, right? You know, if you're not coming in with riders who can just smash their way to victory, you have to be smart and you have to be opportuni opportunistic. I mean, let's... 
let's not forget that you know a team like Sunweb this year, which I think for me was sort of the team of the year this year, uh, in terms of swinging above its weight. You know that, that team came in, and, and a lot of the riders that that were crushing it for them this year were not necessarily riders that you would have picked at the very beginning of the season. It was you know it was quite clear that riders like Hershey were going to be very good quite early in the year. But if you'd asked me last year, I might not have said that. So you know anything's possible. You pick up some some young talents, some up and up and coming stars. We'll see. Anything else on the transfer front, Dane? Yeah, a couple of riders. Well, first of all, we should talk about some of the big names that are leaving the team. Uh, and they have lost some of their talented guys, um, and and also some young guys. Some of the guys that might have been that that uh, that next generation for the team have moved on. I think the the big one of the young guys is Samuele Battistella, who was the 2019 uh, under 23 world champ. Um, that that's a uh, you don't really want to lose a rider like that if you're trying to build for the future. He's headed to Astana, um, Astana Premier Tech. Actually, I don't think we've talked about that either. Astana's going to get a new name next year with a Canadian sponsor coming in. They're going to be Astana Premier Tech. Uh, so that's one guy that's left. Edward Bosenhagen headed to Total Direct Energy, which is a team that is slowly compiling uh, older classics veterans. They're going to have Edward Bosenhagen and Nicky Terpstra uh, next year. So they'll at least have some big names if they can you know, get some results out of them. That would be su- surprising to me, but uh, they, they've got that. It's still a French team. They're not going to get results. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, Shadi. You can't speak of your of your... Adopted homeland in that way. Yeah, but that's rude. Since Thomas Volkler's left that squad, what have they done? <laughs> it's very true. Uh, I want to talk very briefly about Premier Tech because um, I think we've mentioned this in the podcast before, but their website is—they're like a peat manufacturer or something like that. Anyway, their website is the greatest pile of corporate gobbledygook I have pretty much encountered anywhere anywhere of any website i've ever read in my entire life it is absolutely fantastic go check it out premiertech.com worse than uh, sd works because when i was looking into sd works when they picked up bulls domains it was pretty pretty un- unintelligible from someone who doesn't know very much about i don't know business premier tech is all about people about how we make things happen together driven by a powerful desire and steadfast commitment to make a difference. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> anyway, go check it out. It's fantastic. Just some superb corporate copywriting going on over at Premier Tech right now. Yeah, the uh, other other big names, uh, just one other from NTT I think we're talking about. There's several, but uh, Louis Menke is going to Circus Wante Gobert. They're going to be World Tour next year, and they're now at least taking on a rider who has been in the top 10 in, in several Grand Tours in his career. Uh, Menke's, I think, He's the guy that's been associated with his team, Dimension Data, NTT, whatever they've been called, uh, despite a brief break elsewhere for a while. So that's a big loss, I think, just in terms of the way the, the, the team's going to be different next year. Uh, but he'll be at Circus Wante Gobert, which is hoping to get some results at the World Tour level as they move up next year, having uh, acquired CCC's license. So outside of the NTT team, I think the, the big transfer, biggest transfer has got to be Miguel Angel Lopez, uh, who is going from Astana to Movistar. Uh, I think it's a good move for him. The Movistar team needs new, new young riders. They need new GC guys. Uh, they they lost a bunch of GC guys all at once this this year. Uh, and Lopez coming into that team will have, I think, every opportunity to to prove that he can, you know, get a Grand Tour podium or better. Um, it's going to be fun to see because he's a great attacking rider, and Movistar loves to send guys on the attack, attack each other, all kinds of fun things. 
so hopefully we'll get to see some of that uh, within there next year. I just want to point out that I chuckle a little bit every time I hear a CCC. <laughs> Still to this day. When you I, have your new teeth now. I do. I have. I finally have a tooth. It's a big deal. It's very exciting. It's a real bummer that they're going to be they're not going to be around in the World Tour Peloton anymore next year. So, hmm. uh, Will Barton. Not even any point in smashing your face in the ground anymore. <laughs> Is that why you did it? James did it just for that reason, so that he could say. Yeah, it was. It was for the joke. It was really. It was just he did it for the listeners. Sure. Extensive joke. Extensive and expensive. I'm, I'm very worth it. I'm very dedicated, Abby. I'm very dedicated. It's exceptionally dedicated to the cause. Uh, yeah, EF also brought on uh, Will Barda. Speaking of the CCC team, that's a pretty cool get for them. Uh, American rider who had that awesome ride at the Vuelta where he was one second away from beating none other, Prima, none other than Primoz Roglic in a time trial. Uh, and that was. I'm sure pretty heartbreaking for Will Barta, but he did end up getting a contract, you know, I'm assuming largely because of that huge ride, so good for him. Yeah, we talked about that at the time as sort of him riding for a contract. It turned out to be true, actually. I mean, it, it often does only take one big ride like that for directors to kind of take notice. So congrats to him. I'm glad that he found a team. Yeah, they also picked up Michael Volgren uh, from NTT, by the way. That's a pretty talented rider who didn't have that much going on this year, I think, but we've seen him do really well in races in the past. Uh, EF has some has some comings and goings. They're going to lose Mike Woods, Simon Clark, Sean Bennett, uh, Sepp Van Marka, but they are bringing in some some talented young riders, so yeah. Yeah, a bunch of Canadians went over to Israel Startup Nation. Not too surprising as Sylvan Adams is from Canada originally. Uh, there's there's I think there's as many Canadians as Belgians on that team, which is kind of cool. The uh, Astana Premier Tech team also kind of bringing on some Canadian talent as they bring on that Canadian sponsor, uh, Steve Bauer, joining that team as a sports director. And uh, I kind of want to see him ride, you know, but I don't think it's going to happen. But he's talented, so bring on some talent. There's an impressive amount of Canadian talent in the World Tour right now, actually. Like, as much, if not more, than American talent, which is surprising considering we have a lot more people down here. Um, yeah, super impressive. I guess sort of led by Mike Woods is probably the sort of the highest profile. There's a lot of countries I feel like you could say that about where you look at the population and you're like, why don't we? That's know? true. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. How many people's lap do you have? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to today's debate. We like to we like getting angry messages, basically. That's why we keep bringing debates into the podcast. Uh, we just love it when people send us angry notes. No, I'm kidding. We like feedback. For sure. Today, we're going to be talking about, as I said earlier in the show, crashes and how broadcasters should treat them. Uh, I, this was spurred by uh, sitting around Sunday morning and turned on the F1 race in Bahrain. And in the first lap, there was this big, nasty crash. Roman Grosjean clipped another car, swung off into the barriers. Barriers basically cut his car in half, uh, which is not supposed to happen, but... Uh, it also cut the, I think either the fuel lines or the or the actual gas tank, in half, and all of a sudden fuel was everywhere, and then it, it kind of exploded, big fireball, uh, and the F1 director, basically the director of the of the TV, like feed, cut away from this and kind of waited a couple of minutes, and we just saw wide shots of cars parking and some tight shots of concerned looking drivers and things like that. And then after a couple of minutes, when it was clear that Grosjean was able to get out and walk away, and he actually he walked away with just sort of uh, minor burns to his hands and, and ankles, I think, 
Then they cut back, and then we saw a bunch of replays of the thing, which was a totally terrifying crash. But that made me that made me think because I feel like there's been a couple times in recent history in cycling where directors have not made that decision. And and I was thinking specifically of two events this year. One was the Remco and Evenepoel launching over a bridge at Lombardia, and the other was. Jakobsen and Grunewagen and that big nasty crash in Poland where we saw many, many, many slow-mos well before we really knew how injured the the athletes were. Uh, and I think this is the important point is that, that I'm not necessarily advocating for not showing replays, uh, although some would for sure. Uh, more just sort of waiting to find out what exactly happened uh now if you might have read the story we put up on sunday i chatted with rob hatch over at eurosport uh and as well as a a a producer a former producer with nbc um to sort of find out exactly how this works and basically why these things happen and a lot of it comes down to the fact that eurosport nbc whatever the whatever tv channel you're watching is not actually making the decisions about what you're seeing on your television. It is possible for them to cut away to some prearranged shot, but they're not actively directing the the cuts and the shots that are that are hitting your television. That's all coming in from a world feed. And the director of that world feed is usually some local TV producer. Uh, you know, in France, it's somebody from France TV. Uh, in Italy, it's somebody from Rai. Those are that's where those decisions are being made, and so it makes it really difficult for for cycling to sort of make a a, a big wide decision. Okay, this is how we're going to treat crashes, uh, and as a result, I don't really see this changing. But the debate today is what should broadcasters do in event in the event of big crashes. And actually, we have a we have a special guest here today, a friend of the podcast, Tom's. I believe Abby pulled you in because I, I we do want we want to hear the sort of athlete's perspective on this. Uh, when something nasty happens, whether you're racing or whether you're just watching on television, how do how do you feel about it? What do you what do you think should be done here? Hi Wade, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> My Zoom thing still says Wade Wallace. Yes, I like that. First, I would like to mention that James is wearing how Abby probably feels right now. She's been saying that she's been cold ever since she got here. Uh, haven't actually looked at these uh, Zoom backgrounds of yours, but it's entertaining. Dane's probably the least entertaining. Sorry, Dane. <laughs> Jeez, shots fired from everybody today. Can't catch a break. Anyway, uh, I just need to make a good intro, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I don't watch i mean i'm not one that watches as much racing as uh fans do so it's hard for me to say exactly uh what should be like the what should actually happen but for sure i think for everyone seeing um a crash and not knowing what happens is not really pleasant and i don't think that i mean obviously it's probably they're doing it because people have people always want crashes and i mean i think americans especially nbc i think are very guilty of a lot of times just uh putting out videos of crash reels um and i mean that's not really what you want to associate your sport with um but obviously it is an occurrence and yeah it would be great if there was a way to deal with it uh better 
But for example, what has what is maybe good that can can come out of it? Let's say if they saw if everyone saw Bardet's crash and he was stumbling out of it, um, if people would actually take uh, that video seriously and see that he has a proper concussion and not let him get on just from that video, you could see. Whereas when a doctor shows up a few minutes later because the doctor's car is not the first car to get on the scene, uh, and that while the doctor gets out of the car, maybe he doesn't see him wobbling, then from the video, actually, that would be a good help to know that even though Bardet maybe was in that uh, moment talking like normal, acting like normal, that he should still not be riding. But at the same time, I think those videos can be looked at later after everyone is sure that there's we're not just seeing someone die on the road. Hmm. Abby, how do you feel about this? I mean, you know, you're... You're often sitting here, now that you're retired, you're sitting here and watching Tom's race and see big crashes. And What goes through your head when, you, when, there's, a, when there's an incident that you know that he could be part of? You don't know, though, that he, that he could be part of. Like, What goes through your head in those moments? What, what would you like to see? My heart drops out my butt, and I can't <laughs> breathe for a good solid couple minutes, and there's definite, definite panic. We watched the F1 race, and when the car just like exploded into flames, my immediate thought was, like, I really hope that that's not someone with a wife, or like, I really hope that that person's mom isn't watching, because... As like not even as a fan watching, but as like some a significant other watching, it's just awful. And that's always my immediate thought whenever there's any crashes. Is like I think maybe Mike Woods crashed one time this year, and I immediately texted his wife and and was like, "Hey, like I I saw that. Like, let me know if you need anything." Um, I'm so sorry. And, and it's not even like a, it's just like a, an automatic response to think of the, the people watching who could be impacted by it. And obviously like I'm coming from a point of view where my significant other has been in a serious, serious accident that was shown on repeat over and over and over and over and is still shown on NBC like this year when he was in the tour de France break. So that's just like, Seriously, <laughs> um, I I agree that, yes, showing the crash afterwards when you know that the rider is okay, when you know that the, the people involved are all alive and are, like, walking off of the street or riding away, it's a different story because you want to analyze the crash and see what happened. You, you want to, I don't know, pick it apart. But as far as like people being injured on TV while you're watching helpless at home and there's nothing you can do and you don't know if, if that was in this, the Tour de France this year, we just saw a Trek rider go hurtling into the side of a like rock wall on a descent. And I'm sitting there trying to s figure out what number it is where I would rather just, you know, them not show it over and, and get a text from the Swanee who I text all the time. Who's like, yeah, yeah, Tom's is fine. Um, versus seeing it and speculating what could be, because like that's the worst part is speculating what the damage could be. Um, I feel like this is this brings into 
a whole nother discussion of how cycling could be more monetizable. That's not a word, but like the way the F1 does it is, (laughs) is it a word? Cool. Uh, The way the F1 does it is like they have F1 TV, right? And you sign up for F1 TV and then you can watch F1 races through the app and they have complete control over the streams. And this is something that I think women's cycling could do a lot easier than men's cycling is have all of their races broadcasts from themselves um, uh, with all the same announcers every single weekend and have it all on one app where it's easily accessible and everything like that and, and get money from it because people will sign up for it. It's the same way. Like if you watch hockey, you sign up for whatever NFL TV, NFL, NHL TV, and you pick your favorite team and you can pay you, your money goes straight to that team. And that would also solve the crash issue because if cycling was in charge of their own crash crash reel i feel like it just that we wouldn't be having this conversation yeah you know i think that's it's not that cycling has always done this poorly um and i do think it's it's important to sort of differentiate here between like the crash reel which i think some might find distasteful but is i think at the end of the day if you know that the rider is okay that's sort of not as bad, right? It's, it's, if you know they walked away, like, yes, as much as I don't like watching Tom's hit the deck at Tor California on repeat because I know him and I don't like watching it, I also understand that, like, NBC is trying to make an, a, a, an interesting product and for them, crashing is part of cycling and et cetera, et cetera. It's for me, it's, it's that, like, it's that three minutes, two minutes right after something happens, right? And I think that that's really that's where for me anyway that F one kind of nailed it over the weekend. It's like they 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 pulled away, they waited, and the first shot that we got going back to the crash site was essentially just Roma Grosjean like getting out of the car, right, on his own two feet. We knew he was not dead, not on fire. Uh, I mean, you know, the first thought that went through my head in that crash was like, oh, that guy's dead, right? Like he's he's in he's literally inside a ball of fire. Uh, to, to then get that sort of closure at the end of those couple minutes. I would rather find that wait, have to wait two minutes, find out two minutes later what it, what had happened versus watching that crash on repeat for two minutes until we find finally figured out what happened. Right. Uh, I think that that's, that's the sort of differentiator here is like, what do you do in the immediate aftermath of a really bad accident? Not even just like, okay, you've got a big, big pile up at the Tour de France, you know, 15 guys went down, 20 guys went down, on a straight road, chances are everyone's just sort of beat up, right? Uh, you know, maybe a broken collarbone here or there, but it's not like a Fabio Jakobsen into the barriers clearly going to end very, very, very poorly. It's not a Remco over the over the bridge where you don't know how far the drop is on the other side of that bridge. Uh, I think that you can sort of differentiate between the sort of normal crashes of cycling and the extra normal, the, the above category crashes of cycling uh and how you treat them right uh and the way that you deal with those two minutes after the crash uh kelly what uh like what would constitute okay i think is the other question um because there's going to be crashes where people are going to be uh hurt but not uh dead or on fire like like you said from the f1 crash and that's i'd be curious like what the line would be there in terms of when it's okay and when it's not okay to or like when do we when do we cut back and say okay he's okay enough or she's okay enough? I feel yeah. like the the row um, the Bardet crash. 
um, at the Tour de France, that falls into the okay category because he went down on like a relatively straight road. You, you didn't even, you didn't really see what happened. It was just like a touch of wheels. It was nothing overly dramatic and, and it could have easily been fine if not for the concussion. Um, I feel like that crash in particular, you could throw that into the okay category because there wasn't like clear carnage. And then I like, there's a couple like that come to mind that are most of the crashes that come to mind. I mean, I would say no, but I do think just because we were just talking about that one, that one, I I don't, I don't want to see it over and over, but I do, I would be more understanding of broadcasters playing that one over and over because that one is more of like a, okay, what happened here? How did this happen? Versus like with the Jakobsen crash, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't care. Like I care what happened, but I don't care what happened. I don't want to see it. No one needs to see it until we know that that kid is okay. Well, then where would you put my crash? Because there was not really a crash that was like super dangerous. I didn't hit a wall. I just hit the pavement and slid. But at the same time, I was very happy that it was nighttime in Europe and uh, my parents were not watching because if my mom had seen that live, then the grass would probably be dirt in our garden. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that one, I would say, is absolutely not okay to show on repeat. And com- like completely re- removing my bias from the situation, I would say no because you're stumbling all over the road. You have no s- skin. You have no nothing covering your skin anymore. You clearly look like you're you're seriously injured, and you're like tripping over yourself. And even the co- I think if the commentators don't know what to say, it probably shouldn't be played on repeat. If the commentators are like, uh, oh, oh, uh, oh, this this kid shouldn't get back on a bike, then it probably shouldn't be on TV over and over. Yeah, I think that one of the things that really struck me about the incidents I mentioned earlier was the fact that the commentators were actually apologizing for what they were showing on on the screen. And again, that goes back to the fact that, you know, the, the Eurosport commentators, for example, are not making those decisions. They're not deciding what to show you. Um, and the fact that they were apologizing, I think, was was really indicative of, of the fact that both them and a lot of the audience were kind of like, this is too much. Like, I don't need to watch Remco fly over this 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 bridge 30 times while I wait to find out, you know, what's happened to him to kind of return to your question though. Like maybe like I, I, I kind of pull that line a bit further back and maybe that's just cause I'm a little bit further separated from, from the racing than you are. Like you're, you're about as close to professional bike racing as it's possible to be, particularly now as, you know, as Tom's his partner and I'm a little bit step further away from that. So I can fully understand why it's just sort of a, a casual fan at home watching a television is even further removed than I am but my line is like if it doesn't appear that this athlete is potentially like permanently damaged then I I think showing the replay as an educational thing as like what just happened like how did that happen who whose fault was that like those are all questions that are that are valid and need to be answered at some point I do think that waiting a little bit to find out that no one's going to walk away from this or, or, or not walk away from this. Uh, I should say no one's going to leave this with like permanent injuries. I think that that's, uh, or worse. I think that that's important, but I do think that showing replays as 
as sort of hurtful as it can be to the athletes and their partners and, and anybody else that's sort of close to anybody in, inside the sport, I think for the broader fan base, without that personal connection, it's probably not as big of a deal. Uh, and it is part of cycling, right? Cycling's super dangerous, and it is. It's just sort of that's that's it's you kind of you've you've signed up for a sport that is somewhat dangerous, right? Well, that's what I meant. I th- feel like it uh, it wasn't like it should be shown because I did walk away, even with some si- side step stepping, but I did walk away from the crash. You didn't I walk mean, I th- away. You fell for. <laughs> He kind of stumbled. He stumbled away. <laughs> I think th- th- there's some debate here on what what exactly constitutes walking away. But I mean, to, to your point, to your point, Kaylee. I mean, I think there there certainly is something to be said for for looking at replays of incidents like that as some sort of educational thing and some sort of instructional thing. Like, you know, Tom's that crash is a perfect example of you know an, an incident where you know that that crash can and should be used as an example of how. In sort of the post-crash situation should not be handled. And in that case, then I think there is a very good case to be made for replaying that crash. Um, it's another thing when you replay a crash like that and just have it be spectacle. I mean, that that's that's a whole other situation. Um, and like, you know, the Remco crash, that sort of thing. I mean, that replaying that over and over again or the Jakobsen crash, I mean, that clearly was just spectacle because, I mean, you really didn't know what was happening at the time. But to come back to this to this original F1 thing, I think what, one important thing to, to look at is, you know, I really want to see what happens from here in Formula One as a result of that crash. Because one of the things that you heard over and over again was that, you know, the way that those cars are designed, I mean, the, those fuel lines and the fuel systems have, you know, multiple, multiple kind of automatic shutoff valves and things like when when the system breaks and you're not supposed to spew fuel everywhere. So the fact that that car erupted in this massive fireball pretty much immediately upon impact, uh, I mean, that will surely be investigated. And then I'm really interested to see what changes might be instituted as a result of that, because, you know, Formula One can and should be using that as a learning experience. And then, you know, the fact that Grosjean even just survived that is a perfect validation of the lessons that they had learned in the past. I mean, the reason why those cars have those, those you know, they call them the halos, the big carbon fiber and titanium rings around the cockpit. And the reason why those things exist is because a driver crashed because they their head was not protected. So, you know, for him to go straight through a metal armco barrier, and you can see the damage on the car. I mean, the car was split in half. The, the, the halo was broken. I mean, Grosjean was one of the drivers who was quite vocal about being opposed to those halo safety devices when they were being introduced. And he obviously was very open about it the other day when he said like, you know, no, that thing, like I, I was opposed to that thing, but that thing totally saved my life. I would not be here speaking to you if those hadn't been instituted. Do, uh, away from the, the safety aspect of how they're going to go forward with redesigning the car or whether they're going to redesign the car, F1 have clearly been here before with knowing how to handle incidents like this on TV. Because I remember 1994 when Etten Senna died, um, crashing in, I think it was Imola, Italy. And I remember remember watching that on TV. I, I can't remember, really remember them showing the aftermath of it, but just jumping on YouTube now and doing a quick search, there is footage of him at the side of the road, still in the car, paramedics around him, helicopters dropping down to pick him up, the race being being stopped. And you think, well, clearly 
they showed that footage back on TV in 1994, uh, whether it was live or after the event. And it, it's not something that you want to watch now. And that's that's they've, they've clearly learned their lesson from that and gone, right, let's not show this, whether it's a, whether it's a death again. Because, yeah, it, I, th- I think cycling just needs to look at other sports and go, yeah, they're doing it right. Let's just copy them. From the perspective of how realistic this is to actually happen, I'd be curious to to know whether the broadcast nations, so like whether those audiences, whether those broadcasters feel the same way, because that's really what has to happen. I mean, there is some control, editorial control over whether uh, whether our broadcasters show these things, but a lot of times it's it's the host broadcast and they don't do anything about it. They don't they don't make the decision one way or the other to show or not show. Uh, and I'd be curious to know whether this is American, you know, British, Australian. Canadian, Irish, you know, viewers and, and broadcasters, or whether there are some Italian, you know, broadcasters or Belgian or French broadcasters, et cetera, who feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, when I spoke with Rob Hatch, uh, he mentioned cultural differences, and actually, the NBC producer that I that I spoke with mentioned the exact same thing, which is that this is very much viewed in the context of censorship in in different parts of the world. Uh, among different audiences with different directors. And he was basically saying that the sort of the Anglo perspective on this was, was in general, again, these are, these are just generalizations in general, less, uh, less willing to show potentially like horrific, uh, shots basically versus in, in, in other areas where not showing those things is viewed as censorship and he actually specifically mentioned like in spain you know spain used to be a dictatorship they they're sort of they're very uh they're very wary of media censorship which you know in sort of the broader context of media makes a lot of sense right the sort of lie by omission thing that i mentioned in the in the story that i wrote like that is that is that's valid right that there is some validity to that broader argument and when you really narrow down you know is is it censorship to not show a crash on replay immediately after the fact? I I think that's a bit of a stretch, that argument. Um, particularly if you're going to show it afterward once you find out what happens. Uh, I, I Yeah, I, I find that argument somewhat just not, not particularly relevant. Um, th- there, is, there is that cultural divide, right? Hatch spoke about it specifically, and I think that it's... Uh, it is relevant to this entire discussion because, as as we said earlier, the people making these decisions are not the people that, you know, you're you're going to talk to on Twitter, for example. Like, oh, you know, Eurosport messed this up. I'm going to tweet at at Rob at Rob Hatch and and yell at him. Right? R- Rob can't do anything about this. Uh, you know, he might have a producer. Not always. He might have a producer around who could switch the feed. Uh, but those decisions need to happen really, really, really fast. And you know, the director of the World Feed is doing absolutely nothing but pay attention to that feed and decide what clips are going to be shown, right? No, Nobody at Eurosport, nobody at NBC for most of these events uh, is doing the exact same thing. I think that that's asking a bit much uh, to have those decisions be made in real time as sort of from a secondary perspective. Eurosport is seeing that footage basically at the same time that we're seeing that footage. Uh, and so that's a really, really difficult thing to do. And going all the way back to those directors... Again, this is this is just one of those things, and not just cycling, but in most sports, where 
each of those ins- instances is going to be it's it's the discretion of the director at the event and it's really hard to get any sort of like firm rules in place because there's nobody to apply those rules and that's where f1 is is a little bit different because F1 has Liberty Media that controls the the world feed, controls all of the broadcasting rights, and and writes rules around how these things are broadcast. I don't know. I, I reached out to F1, and obviously nobody got back to me. I don't have a whole lot of contacts in F1. I tried to find out <laughs> if if these rules are written in into any sort of broadcast contract. Couldn't find out. But you know, there there very well could be a rule in there that just says if there's an event. And again, based off like Ayrton Senna and a couple other sort of horrible, tragic accidents over the years, if there is an event like that that reaches that level where there is concern that the driver or in cycling's case, the athlete may not walk away from this, then we don't show it until we find out whether they're going to walk away from it. That that might be a rule in F1's broadcasting. It's definitely not a rule in cycling. And I don't think you could even make that rule in cycling because there'd be nobody to enforce it with the way that cycling is currently broadcast. Can I just bring up a, 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 a small point? The people that are look, just looking at the comments as well that are saying you're censoring cycling if, if, you, if you don't show this. TV censored already. You don't turn the TV on at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and watch uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, um, I don't know, a couple <laughs> going at it um, without their clothes on. So, yeah. It's like... <laughs> So, yeah, you, you're not you're, TV censored already. At least not on the channels you're watching. No, yeah. no, Nickelodeon or <laughs> children's TV, definitely not. Um, and it's just yeah, TV censored already. So it surely it should be the same for any anything that goes on before the watershed. If it looks serious, if it looks dodgy, if it look, looks like it could affect someone mentally, don't put it on. Yeah, or at least wait. Yeah, yeah. Like, all, all I'm asking for, really, I think that a lot of the comments in that piece didn't fully sort of grasp the fact the fact that I was not asking for a, a blanket ban on replays. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, just just wait. Just like I said, I think the F F one did it perfectly. And in fact, I, I the NBC producer that I was talking to, he went back and and he watched the F one. He hadn't watched it live, but he went went back and watched the broadcast as live and and agreed with me. He's like, yeah, that's how it should be done, and that's that's often how it's done in in other big American sports that he's worked in. He's worked in football and in the NHL and things like that. And he's you know, and if there's an event that is potentially catastrophic, they they do the wide cut, and you just see this wide angle, and then they they zoom in on a couple faces that just to show concern. Uh, and they wait until until we find out what the outcome is, and I think that that's a reasonable thing. You know, I I I, I understand the the censorship arguments. I understand the educational arguments in particular, but I just maybe it's because I'm I don't know. All of us here in this podcast are relatively close to the sport of professional cycling. Two of two of us more so than others. <laughs> I feel like I'm uh, the most wh- biased person here, even though Tom's is actually been shown falling over and over <laughs> i'm the one who's like i i can't it's not which makes but sense you're the right? one watching on television right yeah. like it, it can be more it can be more difficult to watch that on television right uh because you don't know it's the uncertainty that is the that is the the real the real difficult part uh, not to not to say that actually hitting the ground is not difficult times uh that's pretty easy but- <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but like mentally, like dealing with this, right? You know, 
I think it's no surprise, Abby, that you have the the views that you have. And I think it's no surprise that people who aren't as close to it have the views that they have, where they view it much more as just a, you know, as entertainment, right? Which at the end of the day is what it is. It's, it's sport. It's entertainment. It's supposed to entertain us. And if you're entertained by, by people falling off their bicycles, then that's what you're going to want. I feel like, yeah, cycling is entertainment. We view it as a sport, a spectacle, but at the end of the day, it's not a TV show. It's not a movie. That's not the actors are walking away from, from the, you know, huge explosion scenes and stuff. You know that the actors are okay in that's in those scenarios. It's, it's different here because it's human lives. It's literally human beings that are, we're watching on the television screen that have wives and children at home. And yes, my views on this are clearly more dramatic than other people because I am in the situation that I'm in. But I just think like fans of the sport, you're fans of the riders. How can you want to see this? And then in the same minute be tweeting, I really like, I hope this person's okay their families in my thoughts. That's just like <laughs> incredibly hypocritical in my opinion. And I, and I know that people will not feel the same way, but I just think that people forget or lose touch with the fact that the, that these are real humans that they're watching on the television, like human bodies that, you know, can't don't have stunt doubles the riders don't have stunt doubles to do the crashes for them so i feel like it's not comparable to entertainment as as in you know the the broad scheme of being entertained by watching a train wreck in a movie no i fully agree with you there i I can see where you're coming from and um you are right about fans I would think because you look at YouTube and they're all the big races, well, or people, fans of the sport who have access to downloading, I suppose, illegally footage from the race seem to cut together the best crashes of 2019, the best crashes of this race, the best crashes of that race. And they get huge views, don't they? You look at it, it's an easy, it seems to be an easy get for YouTube channels to, yes, yeah, splice together. 20, 30 crashes from the season or from a particular race and upload it and people love it. You look at the comments and it's people like, oh, did you see such and such go down in that crash? That looked painful. They love it. And yeah, you're right. It's hypocritical to jump on Twitter, say, oh, I hope such and such is all right. Yet, happily then, I suppose, jump onto YouTube or complain if... They didn't show the the replay again. Anyway, I don't think we're going to solve this at the moment. I just sort of wanted to present the argument and discuss some of the difficulties. Uh, Go check out the piece we've got up on the site. Let us know what you think. You probably think we're wrong because we've presented a lot of different viewpoints here. So you're going to disagree with something for sure. <laughs> Let us know what you think. Uh, either in the comment section on this post because we put all the podcasts up on the site. Tweet at us. Whatever you want to do. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Thanks, Toms. We appreciate your insight as always. Bye, Toms. Bye, everyone. James especially. <laughs> <laughs>
I love the hoodie or jacket or whatever. It's a sleeping bag with armholes. Even better. <laughs> I think it is time to do a, a deep dive into a very strange new chain. It's time for Nerd Alert. 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 Uh, now, before we get into this, we are going to say goodbye to Abby and Dane because, well, they're not real big chain aficionados, I would say. Uh, I think I clean my chair chain maybe once every mm, five months, and then I'm like, mm, I think I think this thing needs to be changed, but then I keep riding it. <laughs> this is the uh, the Kaylee Fretz School of Chain Management. Yes, I think it's <laughs> it's, it's excellent. <laughs> All right, so we're going to say goodbye to Dane and Abby and jump into Nerd Alert. All righty, let's talk chains. James, what are we talking about here? What's going on? Well, uh, I feel like we've been talking about chains and like drivetrain friction and all that sort of thing a lot in the last few months, courtesy of our own Dave Rome, I think, who has made it his personal mission to fully optimize every person's drivetrain in the world. But um, as good as conventional roller type chains are, which is basically every bicycle chain, um, you know, there are limits to how much you can optimize things, of course. And there's a new UK company called New Motion Labs that has come out with this new chain design that is, you know, genuinely different. Uh, instead of instead of having a chain that has rollers that basically sort of just like push up against the backside of every sprocket tooth and are kind of getting pulled by the the front side of chain ring teeth. What they have now is uh, this sort of like weird double-sided rocker link thing that you know basically encapsulates the front and back side of each tooth. I mean, it requires different chain rings and sprockets. Um, but by fully capturing each tooth, they are making some pretty bold claims. They're saying that it's, quote, the most efficient chain ever. Uh, they're also saying it has a four-time increase in system lifetime. Uh, supposedly, can transfer 25% more torque. Not really sure exactly what they mean by that. Uh, and then they're also talking about a decrease in peak stresses of 30%. Uh, so essentially, what they're saying is, you know, you can transfer power more efficiently. It's more durable, and it has less friction. Um, I, I mean, I, I actually have a call scheduled with the the CTO, I think, of the company tomorrow. I think it is. So this is going to be for a follow-up article. Um, because I have an awful lot of questions about this whole thing. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, some of the things that they're saying are inherently flawed or bad about roller chains are a little bit unusual because they're saying that first, first of all, like, you know, they're saying that load on a regular roller chain is concentrated primarily on just one tooth. But, you know, I don't know, you know, sort of what their test scenario was. I don't know if this accounts for where. Um, I don't know how their new chain design accounts for wear because, you know, even if you encapsulate a tooth on the front and back, I mean, it's not like the front edge of a, it's not like the front edge of a, of a cassette tooth, for example, is doing anything because I mean, okay, you've, you're grabbing onto the tooth, but how does that make it more efficient? And, you know, they're saying that this new design spreads out load across more teeth than a regular roller chain, but that seems to be, to me anyway, more of a of a tolerancing thing, or like you know, more precisely matching the spacing between between the the chain pitch and the sprocket pitch, than it is an inherent 
you know, factor related to the actual design of this chain. Um, and there's just all sorts of questions. I mean, they they supposedly have actual test results. I haven't gotten details on exactly what the testing is like. That's one of the things I want to talk to them tomorrow about. Um, but I mean, th this this thing is apparently going to get get used in UCI track racing pretty soon, and supposedly it's faster. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess you know we can kind of pick apart the various claims, right? That's the that's the that's the most immediately obvious sort of avenue here. Some of those don't make a ton of sense to me. The torque thing in particular. I mean, isn't a bicycle chain already essentially 100% efficient at transferring torque? I mean, it's not stretching. It's not like well, I don't understand exactly what they're talking about there. Unless they maybe mean 25% more torque before it snaps in half. Is that what they're talking about? Well, I don't really understand because I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like I don't usually hear people referring to a chain as transferring torque. Yeah, um, that doesn't make a ton of sense. We've either, anyway. we've either got people uh, screaming at the podcast at the moment, going, "This is what it means," or everyone's going, "Ah, it's the usual <laughs> cycling um, bold claims that you get from brands." <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the thing is, like, it, it's all sorts of heady sounding claims that sound impressive on paper, but when you really think about it, it the it kind of brings up more questions than answers because there are just all sorts of important details that they haven't really fully disclosed yet, I feel like. Um, and, and again, I mean, I have a follow-up call with, with the, the people from that company scheduled for tomorrow, or I guess, you know, basically today by the time you hear this. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to dig into a lot of this stuff because it just doesn't, I mean, I, I would love to believe that this is sort of, you know, the beginning of this new era of bicycle chain technology and like sort of like this new revolution in, in drivetrain, um, in drivetrain advancement. But I, I, I'm pretty skeptical at the moment. How do you think it compares to uh, something like the ceramic speed direct drive chain set and cassette that we saw, uh, was it two years ago now, a year and a half ago at Eurobike? Oh, like the, sh the shaft yeah, drive one? Yeah, that's exactly the thing. I, I mean... I I, I hate to say it, but just by virtue of the fact that there are still more similarities between this, what they're calling a dual engagement chain and a regular roller chain, that I feel like, you know, regardless of the complexities involved, it still seems like there are more, it, it almost seems like it's more likely that this would actually see the light of day just because this sort of thing is more adaptable to, to current drivetrain design, as opposed to that ceramic speed shaft drive thing where it's a completely, completely wholesale rethink. Um, like you know, dedicated frame, drivetrain components, all that stuff. Like nothing is is transferable. Um, so personally, I feel like this whole dual engagement chain thing has a, a better chance of of actually being used, at least especially on the track. I mean, you know, whether it'll be integrated into some sort of you know multi-speed setup is you know certainly a lot less likely, given the chance, given the the fact that it needs to be. You know, New Motion Labs doesn't intend to really manufacture anything. I mean, really what they're hoping to do is that a, a big company picks up the design and then they can license it to them. Um, but I, I I could see like Shimano and SRAM and Campagnolo maybe like looking at this with some sort of, you know, some level of curiosity. But I doubt that any of the people at those companies are just chomping at the bit to, to license this thing right now. As you say, it may have more leg legs than the ceramic speed thing to take off but you look at direct drive chain uh, chains and they've not exactly taken off and they do seem a good thing they're clean Ad admittedly a pain in the neck to install on a bike but they've not exactly taken off either so is it just a 
Wait, what do you mean by uh, like like? Do you mean, what do you mean, mean like belt driven? Traffic? Exactly, exactly. Sorry, use the wrong words there. Belt yeah. driven. Yeah, I mean, I think the belt belt drives found its home in in places like commuting, really. Well, yeah, commuting and urban bikes and and you know stuff where you don't want your your pant leg to to get stuck in uh, in a, in a drivetrain and get all greasy and things like that. They have their place. I'm not sure that they're significantly more efficient than a chain is. I mean, the thing is, we're talking about you know current chains well treated meaning like you know either the ceramic speed treatment or just hot wax or whatever you're doing or what not like yours basically not mine like 98 percent efficient something like that so there's not a whole lot of gain to be had here but when you're talking about something like olympic track events they're gonna go after a piece of a percent right because that is super relevant at, in an olympic track event you're talking about you know events that are decided by hundreds of seconds over quite a long distance it's it's interesting to me that they are talking about a potential multi-speed setup because I don't I'm having trouble conceptualizing how that would actually work how you would get this chain off of a cog and onto another cog and it's certainly significantly wider than a, a sort of a traditional chain particularly modern like you know 12-speed chains and things that are, are super narrow and I'm not sure exactly how that would work I think it's likely that we see this thing on track bikes sometime soon. Do, I, mean, I mean, do you see it as as a viable multi-speed option here? I, I think one thing that it's important to point out is if you look at the images that are in the article that are that's currently up on Cycling Tips, um, it's really important to point out that this is a prototype chain that they're looking at. I mean, the way that it's put together, the way that the links are are, are built, I mean, that that is not how an actual production chain would be assembled. Like, if you look at a, at a modern roller chain now, you know, the inner and outer links are stamped from you know, more or less sheet metal. I mean, it's pretty thin. Um, this thing looks like, almost looks like every plate was almost kind of machined. I mean, the plates are all really thick. You know, the, the, they're held on with, with actual, you know, snap rings on, on every link. I mean, it's, it's not practical at all and super wide. Um, so in reality, in a, an actual production setup, I mean, my guess is it would be, you know, maybe up to half the width that it is now. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be anywhere near as wide it is, as it is right now, just because all of those lengths are so much thicker than they really need to be. Um, so, I mean, it would be a lot thinner. Um, I mean, multi-speed chains are also surprisingly flexible laterally. Um, I'm not really sure how they would incorporate that sort of thing here. I'm not really sure how, you know, side plates would be shaped so that they could, you know, easily move between sprocket to sprocket, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, again, like, there's all sorts of questions here. I mean, it, part part of me wonders if they threw that out there, if only just to kind of generate some interest and maybe just kind of leave that door open. Um, because one of the things I wonder is while the, while this company, New Motion Labs, developed this concept, you know, taking it from a concept that works on a track bike to something that practically works on a multi-speed drivetrain that's going to require an awful lot more engineering. Um, I mean, who knows? It may be the sort of thing that they're sort of just wait, waiting and hoping that someone else will just pick up and just take from there. Because uh, that would right. be a pretty daunting task for a small company like that to take on. What does Jason Smith think? Oh, funny you should ask that question because I may or may not have asked him already. And I may or may not have gotten a response from him already. Uh, let's just say he's much more, uh, even more skeptical than I am. Mm, Jason Smith, for the, for those who who don't know uh is sort of the i don't know the godfather of 
chain efficiency. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he he's technically the I think the chief technical officer for Ceramic Speed right now. But before he got picked up and hired full time by Ceramic Speed, he used to run his own independent drivetrain friction lab in his, literally in his basement here in Boulder. Uh, it was called Friction Facts, mm -hmm. and he generated an awful lot of data and uh, yeah, produced an awful lot of insight into you know, where friction comes from in drivetrains and in bicycle drivetrains and you know, how you can get rid of them and, you know, how you can optimize different things. I mean, he, he really did generate this enormous body of knowledge. And, you know, other people have since kind of, you know, picked up where he left off, um, you know, folks like Adam Kieran. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say Jason Smith is, I, I would agree, he's basically the godfather. He was the original mad scientist. Yeah, I mean, I, like, how long ago was it now? I was at Velenews. And I and I wrote a story with him, man. It must have been like 2014 or something like that. Um, that kind of kicked off a lot of the waxing stuff. It was all his, all his doing, all his, uh, all his data and analysis and his like crazy test jigs that he built in his basement and things like that. So, if he's skeptical, that makes me kind of skeptical. But. I guess we'll find out going forward, right? We're, we're only going to get more information about this thing. We'll we'll ask more intelligent people what they think and see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, so so kudos to Ronan, our new tech writer, for for uh, I guess uncovering this thing to begin with because it has certainly generated a lot of discussion and a lot of interest. Um, but yeah, we we absolutely have some follow up to do and 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 we'll dig in. Do we it. know how big this company yep. is and if they've got a bit of uh, previous? Have they have have they released other products in the past that have changed other markets or is this the first thing that they've ever done uh i don't think so i think this is the first thing that they've done i looked into the company a little bit it, it's obviously quite small um and the other thing is if they are gonna produce it like on a mass scale and this thing's obviously been i'm guessing like say handmade or, or machined metals rather than all uh, uh yeah mass produced product Surely that's going to reduce the um, performance of it. It's not going to have all these big increases in numbers of that that you stated earlier. Yeah, so I mean, that's we'll going to that, 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 that's going to not make the thing redundant, but not make it as good as they are claiming at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the company is basically kind of what I had suspected. I mean, according to the, what they have on the website, anyway. They basically have six employees, and then they also have a board of eight people, which suggests to me an awful lot of outside, you know, venture capital money, essentially. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I think I feel like we've kind of seen how a lot of these things go. I mean, someone comes up with something that seems like a really, really neat and innovative idea on paper that could potentially revolutionize a bunch of things, and you know, certainly more than just cycling. Because I mean, we're talking about. You know, a completely different type of chain, which uh, has all sorts of implications for other industries. Um, and, you know, the the goal of being a startup company with a lot of VC money is to generate a return on that investment, right? So, uh, I mean, they're certainly generating a lot of hype right now. Um, you know, I feel like they, they're doing a good job of that. But I just, again, like I said, I just have an awful lot of questions here. Um, you know, our readers have brought up a lot of interesting questions in the comments on the on the article, and uh, I I feel like at this point we really just have to dig into it more, some more and find out whether some of these claims really are, you know, seemingly what they say they are, how much testing has been done, you know, what sort of analysis has been done, independent verification, that sort of thing. Because I mean, if it works, if it, it does what it says it does, then awesome. 
you know, have at it. I'm, I'm all for it. But if it doesn't, then this could potentially just be a whole lot of smoke and mirrors, which would be very disappointing. Yeah, or it could be the case where they're trying to use cycling to sort of build buzz, but like the actual goal is to get it on motorcycles or just get it into, you know, manufacturing equipment, a lot of which uses chains to move things around. And, you know, there's there's a lot of uses of chains beyond bikes. And frankly, if they get, particularly if they can't figure out a multi-speed system, a, a single speed bike chain is not going to be a, a particularly successful business venture. There are not a whole lot of people out there riding single speeds. Track is certainly not big enough. The fixie craze is behind us. Uh, there's just not, yeah, that's not, that, they're going to really struggle with that one. But as I said, lots of, lots of sort of manufacturing and things like that, that might, that might use something like this after it sort of got, you know, the, the waters were tested in cycling, particularly at something like the Olympics. You know, if you see Team GB showing up on these things in Tokyo, that's a pretty good advertisement. So wouldn't surprise me if if we do end up going down that pathway, but we'll find out. So what I will say is we're just a bunch of t- cyclists talking about this because, Kaylee, you mentioned in the, this Cycling Tips Slack channel that the article actually got picked up by um, like an investor's website. So they hacker they, news, yeah. So it's why I'm guessing they yeah they see something in it that we don't. There's people there with big books who uh, have big books for a reason, and we're sat in um, <laughs> our garages in our bedrooms doing a podcast for talking about cycling <laughs> for another reason. I don't, I don't know. Again, I mean, I feel like I feel like this is the sort of thing that just sort of it, it very potentially could be the, the the type of thing that generates an awful lot of buzz initially and then you know when you really start looking into the details of uh how the thing is designed and the engineering and the testing and whatnot i just i i like i said i just wonder if all this stuff will still hold water like i said if jason smith is skeptical then i'm skeptical let's uh let's let's keep an eye on this I think it's time to wrap up today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you're watching us on YouTube, make sure that you give us a like and subscribe. And if you're watching, wait, no, listening via whatever podcast app you like, make sure you're subscribed as well. And head over to cyclingtips.com slash sign up if you want to sign up for Velo Club and support everything we do here at Cycling Tips. All right. We'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.